Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SupChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the Cambridge University Judge Business School, and today's episode features a discussion with Ken Jarrett about how multinationals can deal with the increasingly frequent consumer boycotts that occur in China. Ken has lived in China for decades and has wide-ranging business and diplomatic experience there, including five years as president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, and his diplomatic positions have included service as U.S. Consul General in Shanghai. He's currently senior advisor at Albright Stonebridge Group and so involved in advising multinationals about their work in China. Many international brands such as the NBA, H&M, Walmart, Zara, Nike, and others have faced consumer boycotts due to touching on so-called sensitive topics, frequently related to territory integrity issues such as Hong Kong and Taiwan, and also human rights like in Xinjiang. These boycotts are frequently painted with a broad brush in the West, but as we discuss, not all boycotts are the same. Ken offers a typology of boycotts that includes key elements such as the extent of consumer and or government involvement and correspondingly different strategies that companies can take when dealing with them. We also discuss the challenges local China offices have at times in dealing with their headquarters on these issues due to cultural issues and also gaps in understanding the need to respond quickly. Finally, one of the more interesting aspects of the discussion are Ken's suggestions on how multinationals can develop effective relationships with the Chinese government. Unlike the U.S., where there are a very explicit lobbying community and established ways of currying favor with politicians, such as donations, in China, it is frequently difficult for businesses to get the ear of government leaders. But Ken offers some practical suggestions on how companies can go about building these connections over time. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. Uh, so, uh, hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Chris Marquez. I'm a professor at Cambridge University. And welcome to this live SubChina CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, a show focused on the leaders and companies facing the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. Today's webinar is in partnership with the U.S.-China Business Council, the USCBC, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that represents over 250 American companies doing business with China. Over the past few years, many international brands from the NBA, H&M, Zara, Nike, and others have faced boycotts in China for a variety of statements or actions that the Chinese consumers or government have taken offense to. But not all boycotts are the same. To help companies understand how to best deal with this complex situation, today we're joined by Ken Jarrett, who's a senior advisor at the Albright Stonebridge Group, and Ken heads decades of experience in business and diplomatic contexts in China, including he was five years as president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, and his diplomatic positions include serving as consul general in Shanghai. You know, I'm really looking forward to this discussion, Ken. Thanks so much for joining us on China Corner Office. I'm very happy to be with you, Chris. 
Great. Well, I guess, you know, to just dive in would be great to understand this phenomenon a bit better. You know, this there's almost a tradition in some ways of these consumer boycotts, you know, frequently for nationalistic reasons. You know, there's been boycotts of Japanese goods in the past, Korean goods. And particularly, I mean, I find, you know, I'm in, in the West, you know, the media tends to paint them in a very broad brush, but it seems as well that there are, you know, different motivations behind many of them. And I'm curious, how should companies be thinking about the different reasons or rationales that are driving these boycotts? Mm -hmm. So, Chris, so maybe before uh, tackling that big question, just to give some broad context for why, you know, this is a topic that we have on the table and are talking about. Sure. And it's not, I mean, politics has always been there. So companies understand that they always have to maneuver around sort of the politics of doing business uh, wherever they are. But in China today, it's just become much more pervasive. And there are more red lines, even if in the past there were some traditional red lines that companies knew they had to avoid. You know, those red lines are becoming more numerous. You know, they're also becoming more intense in some ways. And they're actually uh, more ideological red lines than before. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, U.S.-China relations are in a different place than they have been in the past. And even the activities of U.S. companies in China are viewed uh, differently in Washington, you know, to give one example. So... You know, and then on top of that, you have uh, greater activism from Chinese consumers, uh, you know, a greater sense of, of national pride or nationalism is shaping the dynamic. And then whether it's Chinese consumers or American uh, consumers, the expectations of how a company should behave, you know, have also been evolving in the, in the last sort of couple of years in terms of, I guess, the eth you know, ethics and moral obligations of companies. So all of this sort of has come to create a, you know, somewhat complicated and challenging mix uh, for, for U.S. companies, and it becomes much harder, you know, to please everyone, if that's, you know, one of the goals. So, so to get to your question, I guess in this discussion, I'm focused more on, I guess, the more politically inspired boycotts, because, you know, you could have a boycott, you know, somebody, let's say food safety, you know, that's a very sort of typical kind of problem right. is a food safety incident, and then consumers are active in social media, but there isn't necessarily politics behind most of those. I mean, sometimes if the target is a foreign company, you know, there's, a, there's an aspect of politics. But uh, let's put those types of issues aside and some focus on sort of these larger uh, politically inspired uh, boycotts. And, you know, if we were to create a kind of uh, set of uh, taxonomy of, mm -hmm. of these situations, you know, there are, I mean, I think we can divide it into sort of four categories all of which have different elements of what is the role of the government and what is the role of the consumers. So that's how I would think about it, sort of these two overlays. Great. Um, okay. So uh, to go through my list of four uh, quickly. Yeah, no, maybe that, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I, I can sort of see that, um, you know, in, in you know, my, our teaching, we always have these two by twos. And I okay. can imagine this, <laughs> you know, the government on one side, consumers on the other side. And I can, you know, I've seen this sort of you know, the high, high ones. And it seems like some of them, like I think Walmart was boycotted. It didn't seem the government was that involved. But then you have, you know, some of these that, you know, involve sensitive topics like cotton in Xinjiang or something like that. They're probably, I think that consumers get upset about it. The government probably helps propel that as well. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about the, okay. those two different yeah, so dimensions. I mean, two by, two by two, you know, something that really can hit you uh, across the head, I suppose. But yeah. so I guess that the high, the double <laughs> high end would be a uh, two by four uh, would be, <laughs> you know, something that's, uh, you know, government inspired and led, you know, for uh, largely for political reasons. So in some ways, you know, the best example of this would be what happened to Korean companies in 2016 and 2017, uh -huh. when uh, South Korea accepted a missile system from the United States, uh, the Chinese government was very upset. And then almost instantly, you know, the government took actions to block uh, Chinese uh, group tours to Korea. You know, there was a big, uh, there were actions against uh, the entertainment industry, so K-pop and various, you know, cultural groups that were coming to China. You know, these stopped overnight. And then there was a particular uh, Korean company because the missile system was going to be placed on a golf course that was actually owned by oh. the Lotte Group. And so Lotte, yeah. which has, you know, hypermarkets in China, you know, right. within days... Uh, many of those hypermarkets were visited by the fire department and, you know, <laughs> the majority of them were shut down sort of overnight for various safety violations. So this is, you know, in some ways it's a classic because for most Chinese, 
you know, this is, it was a high altitude uh, missile system, THAAD is the acronym. You know, most people had no idea what was going on and they would right. uh, see in the media, that they get a sense of the Chinese government's anger about this. But for, I think for most consumers, uh, this was somewhat remote. But, you know, for those Got who it. wanted to go and have plastic surgery in South Korea or go on a, a cruise <laughs> to South Korea, you know, suddenly this, you know, wasn't possible any longer. So this, you know, in some ways is, you know, an excellent example. You know, Japan also over the, you know, the Daoyu Islands or the Senkakus, right. you know, in 2012, you know, there was a big uproar as well. Uh, that one actually, you know, did get uh, citizens in China quite worked up. So there were major demonstrations all across China. And then Japanese automakers yeah. found that their sales dropped uh, for quite a period of time. And to some degree, you know, Australia is sort of you know, facing problems of this sort as mm -hmm. well uh, because of Australia's concerns about influence operations in China. And then specifically, right. a couple of years, when they called for an investigation into the COVID origins, that's what really kind of triggered China's actions against uh, Australia in, on agricultural products primarily. Great. No, that, that's good. I mean, so saying the broad... I guess, historical in some ways, although, you know, they last, you know, 10 years or so examples. But uh, what's your sense about some of these more recent ones, particularly targeting like U.S. or Western companies, you know, you know, uh, Nike, H&M, you know, they or Walmart. I mean, they, they those seem to be in some ways, sometimes both government and consumer, but sometimes maybe just consumer focused. Yeah. So so some of those will fit into sort of a second category, which maybe it's actually consumer spark. Okay. Right. So you have an outraged citizen who who discovers something, and and, and perhaps, and I guess as we talk about companies, maybe for those who are listening, you know, just to make the point that I'm relying on what's in in public sources in the media, as opposed to you know information from right. my work at Albright Stonebridge, but uh, Walmart, in terms of the you know someone noticed that they didn't have products from Xinjiang in the Sam's Clubs. And then that created, uh, you know, a bit of a stir. Uh, and then the question becomes, to what extent does the government uh, encourage this? Mm -hmm. or, you know, what right. kind of legs does it have? Because the government does have the ability to uh, make social media quiet on things. And, yeah. you know, they can signal uh, how they right. feel about it. So in some of these more recent cases, uh, the government really hasn't sort of fanned the flames mm -hmm. of this. And then they sort of gradually sort of uh, face out. And most of these... Uh, touch on some issue of national pride. A number have been related to Xinjiang. Right. Now, that is, of course, probably the most intense challenge uh, for companies right now, or, you know, territorial integrity, right? This is a common element in many of these. Uh, because even, you know, H&M on the cotton side also right. fell afoul of this. In that case, you know, I'd say there was, you know, some additional backdrop because Sweden has been uh, a bit in the doghouse with China for a number of years now. So as China looks to make a point, right? So China also is doing its own calculation and yep. they do want to make an example of someone, but they want to make an, they don't want to hurt themselves that much mm -hmm. and just not to overwork the Korea example, but there's one interesting dimension of that, which is that uh, despite, so Latte lost, you know, almost 2 billion in sales and, and wow. even Korean car sales uh, dropped. However, the sales of semiconductors from Korea to China doubled <laughs> during this period. And even at the moment, in the case of Australia, so, you, you know, wine, barley, uh, beef, this has all been heavily affected, but iron ore is still being shipped to China uh -huh. in large quantities, in growing quantities. So China is being very careful yeah. about what they target and making sure that they don't sort of hurt themselves unnecessarily. Interesting. So what's your sense? Uh, so you mentioned on the, the government sort of fanning the flames. I mean, obviously, you know, there's a variety of you know, levers they can pull on social media. Uh, are there other things that they're that they're able to do? Because it's interesting that, you know, the variation on the Korea example and Australia example where, yeah, they're being strategic and saying, okay, we don't want this to affect our steel imports or our, or our semiconductor, you know, how are they modulating that, I guess? Well, it would mainly be through the media. So, okay. I mean, they have, of course, controls on social media, but right. then they have you know, the state-owned media themselves. So as you are uh, watching TV or listening to the radio or uh, uh, looking at uh, newspapers, you know, online or whatever, or your digital feeds on your cell phone, you know, the government can use that to indicate, you know, how they feel about these particular actions. So I think there's usually you know, not too much doubt in the, right. sort of in the minds of, of individuals. 
I mean, sometimes these actually really come together in a sharp, dramatic way, which would be sort of another category. Uh, and maybe the NBA is a good example of okay. that, where uh, after the famous tweet uh, from the manager of the Rockets, uh, so the government responded immediately. But then, you know, citizens in China also you know, got very agitated yeah. about that. And so if you consider uh, the NBA and, you know, the the strength of the of its popularity in China, they have a very dedicated fan base here. And even the NBA as an organization, if you consider that even Xi Jinping had gone to see an NBA game in the United States. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I mean, yeah, so yeah. on a trip some years ago. Yeah. So the NBA, you know, is quite well positioned in China, yet even they... Because it's Hong Kong and territorial integrity, it was just you know a very hot button right. issue. Uh, even for them, you know, it created a problem that you know took time to work through. So that's you know in a sense a, a third category of those where uh, you know something happens in the government and uh, you know, large numbers in the population see it the same way, and this kind of just kind of builds on itself. Um, and then maybe just to round it out, sure, just yeah, to get the, the fourth one out, and then yeah. we can yeah, 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 not yeah. worry about I have, it. I have a follow-up question <laughs> to that number three, but, uh, <laughs> okay. but we'll get, go finish number four first. I mean, the fourth would just be, so you know, maybe one side is keen, the other side isn't keen. So you know, maybe consumer starts off, but the government sort of kills it off, or the government is eager, but the consumers aren't right. eager. And so there are examples of this. You know, usually, these aren't necessarily so political. You know, sometimes in the past, there have been a couple of episodes where on Consumer Day, March 15th, China always has a big, CCTV has a, a big TV show and they always try to embarrass somebody. And, and they use, often there's a foreign company that's thrown into the mix, but it doesn't necessarily catch on with okay. the Chinese public. Uh, so they've had some kind of, I guess, a failure in that sense a couple of times in the past. Interesting. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, so you mentioned the MBA example that is, I'm not sure the extent to which it's, I mean, it's not as hot of an issue, but I don't know if they're still, if they're fully back on the, you know, I think yeah. Tencent or CCTV. And one of the questions actually that's come in, uh, and thank you for for putting the question, the Q&A feature, and, and I will be address, using them, um, you know, using the questions all along as we're going through the through the discussion. So please put your questions in the Q&A function. I really, we really appreciate it. Uh, but you know, I'm curious, like the timing of these things, like what's the, you know, you know, MBA lasts certain long, the question actually asked about H&M, you know, if that's dissipated, I think the Walmart one seemed to go very quickly, uh, dissipate very quickly. Like, you know, what's, what's the typical time frame that these companies are in the doghouse, so to speak? Yeah, so, uh, so it's, it's a bit hard to answer because of course it depends on the circumstances. Right. Uh, in the case of the NBA, you know, it lasted about a year. Uh, so the tweet came out, it was in September of 2019, and then in or October of 2019. And then they, of course, uh, keep in mind that Tencent very quickly can return to streaming. This is also something right. that maybe gets overlooked, that the main action was CCTV, stop the broadcast. Right. And that continued for a year. And during that period of time, I mean, I'm sure the NBA... I mean, I don't have any inside sort of knowledge on what they did, but I'm sure that they were active trying to get, you know, the broadcast resumed as quickly as possible. But it was something that for China having taken a strong position, you know, in these highly political cases. Mm -hmm. So what they, you know, what has to happen is they want, uh, you know, the, the so-called guilty party to feel pain and to suffer a bit. And then for them to, you know, to show their regret and penance. And that takes time. Before right. the government feels okay, sort of enough is enough, and then, and of course, usually the I guess the, the victim company does things in the meantime to try to show its commitment and and and, and to show contrition, and so in the case of the NBA, it was I think not until March. It was over a year before they returned to full broadcasts, uh, okay. you know, on CCTV, uh, but they at least one in one year the NBA finals was reported. So that was about a year later. In the case of South Korea example, since this was a political issue, this also was about a year, uh, a little over a year. But it was actually solved because there was a presidential election. Uh, president Moon was elected the president. He had a slightly different policy uh, toward, uh, toward both North Korea as well as relations with Japan and the United States. And he had he made a political pledge to China. China was looking for Korea to pull out the missiles. They didn't uh, take that step, but they they agreed that they wouldn't put in place any new THAAD missile system. So he, so he did something also to kind of 
you know, get past the politics mm-hmm. that had gotten in the way. Um, in the case of going back even further, you know, in the Japanese auto case, you know, that took about a year okay. for sales to resume. So part of this is, I guess, uh, consumer behavior and how long it takes them to get over a situation. You know, part of it is the politics and what is a particular window or an action that, you know, allows for resolution in some of, you know, whether it's H&M or Walmart. Again, it depends a bit on the gravity of the situation and and things. I mean, I don't know what the situation is of H&M today, right. if, they're, if they're still suffering or not, frankly. It's, it's to some degree, it's kind of moved out of the spotlight. Yeah, definitely not in the spotlight as much. Uh, you've already addressed this a little bit, but I'm curious. Um, crisis happens, company comes to you. Um, you know, what's what's your advice to them? How, how do you how do you deal with this? All right. Um, so there, are, I guess there are a few things, and you know, maybe for those who are listening, hopefully, hopefully for those from companies, hopefully it's a familiar list because that would show that, you know, that they're prepared and organized. Uh, I mean, of course, this is a situation where, you know, an ounce of prevention is truly worth a pound of cure. So you want to avoid sort of getting into a jam in the first place. You know, that's not always so easy to do, but you do need, particularly these days, to be watching very closely uh, the politics Mm -hmm. of business. And to make sure that you have, you know, sensitivities to, you know, what are these, you know, radioactive issues, either for the Chinese government or for the Chinese public, or even back in your home country, because, you know, there's politics there as well. But, you know, if something happens, uh, so hopefully you have some kind of a crisis management plan, you know, many companies will, you know, they do scenario planning. So that's actually a very useful tool you know, often the actual scenario you face is never the scenario that you planned, but it actually will have elements of that. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage companies, you know, to think through a range of scenarios, you know, including, you know, the most ugly, and to figure out uh, how they would address that. Because in the process, you do kind of oil the machinery, right. which has to work quickly, you know, at a time of crisis, because you need to make sure. So what is your messaging? How will the you know, headquarters and, and the local team uh, right. work together. So this is actually a key issue. Uh, so just to maybe emphasize that, because uh, sometimes companies make matters worse because they don't actually understand the importance of that integration. Because, you know, again, depending on the issue, you know, from the company, at company headquarters, it might be viewed purely as a legal compliance issue. Mm-hmm. And so you could have the legal counsel, you know, writes a letter that's fine, you know, from their perspective, but it might be completely sort of uh, ignoring the the politics of what's going mm-hmm. on, and the, and the language could be uh, could be very explosive here in China. So it right. is important for these issues to be seen in their political context as well as sort of in their technical context. And that's where I would encourage you know companies to make sure that you know the teams uh, work together. Now, and then just you know also to follow, make sure you understand the regulatory changes uh, as we are. Uh, worried about uh, you know, new policies either from you know the U.S. or in terms of you know what companies might what kinds of restrictions that companies might face uh, Xinjiang for example you know right. sanctions export controls uh, forced labor things of that sort as well as uh, rules from China as well. Interesting. And and how about uh, we have a couple of questions and a comment as well coming in about like how companies can avoid this in the first place. I mean obviously. Like I, I like your term, you know, radioactive issues. I mean, that that obviously you know covers it well. I mean, these you know nationalist and territorial integrity integrity uh, concerns. Uh, so, what advice would you have to the the you know the companies that you know like Starbucks or Coke or you know GM that seem to avoid this? And then, isn't this in some ways one of the comments that came in as sort of a form of self censorship, which the CCP wants anyways? Well, I mean, so I would, I mean, this is reflects, I guess, a perspective on it. So, I mean, some might view it as a self-censorship. Right. It's partially, I mean, if you take, so territorial issues, because, you know, a couple of years ago, you had a, a raft of incidents of, of nomenclature on websites, and some of this right. led to uh, challenges for hotel chains and sort and the sort. Um, so here, you know, in terms of, so how does one refer to Taiwan or Hong Kong and you know, where do you list them? Are they listed as a country as opposed to sort of part of China? Uh, 
You know, it's not, I mean, you could say this is a, an example of a company censoring itself, but, you know, so we're here where, you know, the Beijing Winter Olympics is going to start tonight. You know, the, Taiwan's participation in the Olympics, you know, this is something that was worked out in the international community over a period of years. So it's not, you know, purely an issue that business faces. It's, I mean, it is a feature of China, I would say, in terms of, you know, these territorial issues. And, and then, I guess, everyone trying to have have as much as possible in terms of, you know, companies do want to be able to do business here. There's some things that they're looking for to navigate a fine line uh, between what's going to at least make them feel as though they can, uh, you know, look at themselves in the mirror still, uh, and sort of not to kowtow because, you know, you read in the press constantly, you know, criticisms of companies for pandering, you know, to Beijing or kowtowing to Beijing. So, you know, definitely... Is, and that's part of the difficulty of this issue, because yeah. for companies, you know, you increasingly see the sign that companies now finally have to pick a side. So mm-hmm. companies, you know, typically are trying to avoid picking a side right. because you know they're looking Very to be so. commercially successful. And then there's a belief that that, that actually is advantageous to both sides. Uh, but, the, you know, the politics of this now is increasingly uh, making it a challenge to, I guess, to be so even handed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious uh, what you think about sort of government relations in China. I mean, obviously, this is something where, you know, the in the U.S., it's something that is, I, I don't want to say it's obvious, but it's something that, you know, all companies are doing, people are doing. I mean, it's it's a very active thing that, that companies are, are, you know, are engaged in. And, you know, actually, the MBA, who you mentioned um, earlier, actually, in the middle of the issues, actually, I had led a student group when I was at Cornell at the time. Uh, and we spent some time in the in the headquarters at the MBA in Beijing, and and one of the students asked our host, said, you know, what do you wish you would have done um, better in this situation? They said, you know, it was really by the time it happened, um, you know, we were stuck because we should have actually built better relationships with the government before then hmm. Um, hmm. to sort of get a sense of. Th- I don't think to influence it, but to like actually have to get a sense of actually what this what was going on, uh, and you know. So government relations for multinationals in China, how can they engage in that in in the Chinese system? Right. Well, so presumably it won't surprise you if you hear me say that it's very important for companies right. to do that. I mean, that's you know, both coming from, from Korea and U.S. government and now spending a lot of time on government relations. Right. So I am a believer in the value of government relations. Uh, so and in China... Uh, if this is taken as you know a, an, an essential in the United States, I would say it's even more essential in China because if you simply think about how the economy functions and the role of government, right. it's actually much more actively engaged in the economy you know than in the United States. And of course, the government everywhere is your regulator. It's always useful to have some relations uh, with your regulators so that they understand what you're doing. Uh, so this is. I would say, I mean, the bigger multinationals, you know, they definitely all understand this and they generally do have teams. Those teams will vary in terms of size and effectiveness. And you know, there's still the tendency perhaps to underestimate the importance of good uh, government relations at the local level. Mm-hmm. Because often when you think government relations, there's almost a reflex to assume, oh, this means Beijing, right. that everything is decided in Beijing. But in fact, most of the enforcement of policy is done at the local level. So, you know, many of your interaction with regulators is at, at that level. Uh, Beijing definitely is important, so, you know, it right. depends on the issue. But another advantage or benefit of the of your local government counterparts is these are the ones who are benefiting from the tax dollars that you pay and see mm-hmm. the benefits of employment. Right. And you're helping them with their metrics. You know, their performance metrics are depending on your investment and all of that. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you have a sympathetic ear, you know, that ear is more likely to be at the local gov- government level. Makes sense. So when you know, a problem erupts, uh, so for a company, you know, it is very valuable if somebody can give you a steer mm-hmm. on you know, what, what to do yeah. or you know, how serious is a problem right. or uh, do they have actually any advice as to what approach you should take. Uh, so that's more likely to you know, occur at the local level. It's difficult at any level. Because often in China, you know, if something goes wrong, 
again, everyone will shut the doors and nobody wants to talk right. to you. You know, that's part of the punishment aspect of this. Yeah. Uh, but if you have, you know, somebody that understands, you know, what you do, because often, you know, there could be a misperception. Uh, perhaps, you know, a big brand company is viewed as just uh, selling a lot of things in China and taking money mm -hmm. and sending it back, you know, to their home country. Right. And people will lose sight of the fact that maybe much of the product is actually made in China, that in a, and I'm thinking in a, in a sense of, of a retail kind mm -hmm. of situation, you know, there's a lot of sourcing and job creation and things. And so, you know, this is something that local government officials, you know, may not be attentive to. So the reason to have interaction with government over a extended period of time is to make sure they understand, you know, what your presence in China means. Mm -hmm. So that will, you know, at least make them a bit more cautious or more understanding when you face a problem. Yeah. So aside from emphasizing, you know, that important aspect, I mean, you know, so in the U.S., you want to build relationships with the government. I mean, one sort of very visible thing is campaign contributions. But in China, they mm -hmm. don't have campaign contributions, at least right. to, my, to, my, to my knowledge. Um, and so how do, you, how do companies go about, you know, actually meeting and interacting and building these relationships so they can get the, these reads that you're talking about? All right. So, uh, so there are two ways that this happens. Um, I mean, one is, uh, this is very traditional, but I mean, China is a very event-driven culture. Uh, so for, and, and there are lots of conferences and things. So usually it's, you know, it's in the context of these types of events, which can be in different types. So you'll have, uh, you know, major Chinese conferences, whether it's the China Development Forum or the Boral Forum, opportunities where, you know, the private sector is in the same room with senior government officials, you know, that uh, provides some opportunity for interaction. It tends to be, you know, pretty fleeting. So it's not that easy to have, you know, a serious sit-down discussion, but right. it's an opportunity to at least, you know, get in front of people. You know, often you will get to exchange cards with key staff members, in a, and that gives you a channel. Mm -hmm. You know, companies also have their own milestones, you know, whether it's a major investment or groundbreaking for a factory or some sort of anniversary, now, this is also something that you know companies will will use to invite government officials to attend and and you know in in the old days of course there were lunches and dinners you know some of that is you know not as easy any longer but the, those types of events uh, also provide opportunities for companies to build relations uh, with uh, government counterparts and then there are other areas so you have for many years, of course, disaster relief has been in an area where companies, of course, will make donations mm -hmm. and they try to, you know, to gain some points uh, through that. Now, that's very traditional and that still takes place. Now, that itself is no longer really sufficient, right. I would say. I mean, the area of, you know, CSR activities, you know, corporate social responsibility, you know, this has been evolving mm -hmm. where, you know, if I were to think back 10 years ago or even in my time, uh, my interaction with AmCham Shanghai, which had a CSR program of its own. Right. Now, typically, so migrant worker children or poverty alleviation, education, uh, these were very traditional kinds of programs. But over time, you know, companies have become more sophisticated and you know, they're trying to understand, so what is it that China is trying to do? Mm -hmm. uh, if, so again, you know, China has, a, so Healthy China 2030. So this yeah. is a, a government program. Uh, what does that program say about improving diet or actually mm -hmm. uh, more physical activity. So if you're a company, uh, what can you do to help uh, China hit some of those targets, particularly at the local level? So you will have companies who are, you know, maybe they're uh, contributing a skateboard facility or maybe they're actually building a, a badminton sort of facility. Mm -hmm. So the things that companies do to show that they understand, you know, what China is trying, you know, the direction that China is going right. and they can contribute. I mean, you have R&D innovation. You know, these are big areas where the government is focusing and companies show that they're trying to participate in that in a in a positive way also. Got it. So, and that, I mean, uh, so this sort of aligning with the government priorities, um, mm -hmm. you know, and you, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned both, um, you know, in some ways, the social priorities like, you know, poverty alleviation, probably some environmental issues, but then also, I think like having it, you know, an R&D center in China is something where, you know, you're sort of showing the importance of the company to building human capital and, and various other right. uh, aspects. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, I think uh, Jesse put, put, a, put a chat in here mentioning about some 
companies, you know, very popular companies, food companies like McDonald's, Oreos, Coke, KFC, that even when McDonald's had a, um, a tainted chicken soup scandal a number of years ago, it just sort of dissipated very quickly. I mean, what, what's your sense for how these companies are able to avoid these issues? Is it they're just have done all this stuff right and, and the government knows they're important, employing people, um, you know, I'm not, these don't seem like very healthy, healthy uh, brands that he listed, but I, you know, I'm curious to hear what you think about how, you know, how these companies are able to miss, um, miss that. Well, usually, I mean, in those, I mean, the companies tend to be quite in the food safety issue right? in that, in that area. So companies, I guess the examples that you've mentioned, uh, they tend to be quite responsive and move quickly and to do so, you know, in a pretty public way. Uh, you know, there was also a, a recent episode uh, with Starbucks, actually, okay. where, you know, they took forceful action to, to uh, you know, a program to kind of retrain people. And so it's that uh, swift response. I mean, some of the companies also in the past, uh, I mean, Walmart actually, has, there's a big food safety center that they've mm-hmm. helped to establish in Beijing. So there are things that they do to work with the government uh, to show that they Know that they understand the importance of a particular issue to the government, and they're, you know, they're sharing their expertise uh, with China because China does recognize that they don't have all of the answers, and they're looking for companies to help them. And if a company is willing to do that, you know, that certainly can help them, you know, indirectly, you know, when they have sort of one of these other uh, problems. But they definitely, I mean, you need to move quickly to address what was, uh, you know, the specific incident. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think that the you know, the Western chains that have run into problems in this area have, you know, a pretty good track record. Got it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I, have a, I have a question came in, and it's, it sort of ties to something you mentioned uh, earlier I thought was really interesting, that, you know, getting, you know, sometimes there could potentially be tension between the headquarters location and the local team in how to actually formulate the right right response. And, you know, the question in particular says, you know, why aren't the local teams able to warn their HQ better and basically in some ways? And in, in regards to all these things that you mentioned about, you know, sort of aligning with the government and building skateboard parks and all these other things are so different than actually, I think, how government relations is conceived in the U.S. You know, I can imagine that maybe sometimes the China local team, you know, there might be a disconnect with headquarters. I mean, what's your sense about how those local China teams are able to effectively work with their, you know, headquarters management to really make things work well and smoothly. Right. So this could reflect, you know, different cultures within a company. Uh, You know, lately, this is also partially a casualty of COVID and travel restrictions as well, which actually, you know, you could argue that that works in, in different directions. But I guess to start with the first point, so depending on the company, in terms of traditionally, I guess, how they see the view of the local office and its interactions with headquarters and to what extent does headquarters want to direct uh, from there. Now, this is something where you know, it's definitely been evolving over the years and increasingly, you know, partially because of the speed at which the China market operates, you know, the headquarters understands that they do need to, to, to allow the local office to have more autonomy. Right. Uh, but for some... You know, for some highly political issues, I mean, you could imagine a discussion at a company, they actually might feel that they're doing the local office a favor, frankly, mm-hmm. right, by taking on an issue, because, you know, maybe Xinjiang is the best example of this, if this is something where, you know, there could be a difference in point of view between, if the local office is largely staffed by, you know, Chinese nationals, you know, they might not, they might see this very differently right. from headquarters. And in fact, you know, the passions on this topic could be at opposite ends, yeah. you know, in the two offices. And and then, you know, headquarters might feel, well, this is so political and maybe the politics actually matters more in the United States. So it's really better for us to take charge because we have, uh, you know, a closer read on that politics and therefore they do so. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that no matter, I guess, which way you judge the particular issue, it's still in the company's interest to get input from both sides, mm-hmm. you know, just to prevent the misstep. In the end of the day, you know, maybe headquarters and its perspective will prevail. Uh, but I would still recommend, you know, that the companies get that input from the local team. Uh, so these days, because of COVID, you know, there's not that, you know, executives aren't going back and right. forth very much. 
you know, there's a certain amount of travel of China-based executives still back to headquarters, uh, but it's not so much, you know, the other way. So this, in some cases, it's actually finally given the local team the autonomy that they always <laughs> wanted, because, you know, the headquarters simply has to defer to them because they just can't get there to see. But in other cases, you could imagine that in terms of because over you know two to three years, so people are changing positions. You don't right. have the you know the personal relationship with somebody, and even if you know Zoom calls are wonderful, yeah, yeah. you can't build the kind of you know confidence and trust that you need when you're tackling something that makes everybody uncomfortable. Hmm. So this also you know can get in the way of you know I guess the smart management of this. Uh, so that's something that companies you know. You know, here I don't have an easy, a short list of right. sort of secret sort of solutions to this yeah. because until you know, mobility improves, it's just going to be difficult for, for companies to kind of uh, to restore or build up again, you know, that kind of internal cohesion, which is really tested at a time of, of crisis. Yeah, uh, sort of along those lines. I'm, I'm, and, and, but your reflection on that were very, you know, helpful, uh, just the same. The staffing of local offices in China. I mean, there's been some, you know, cases that are, that are where you know they maybe hire someone who doesn't have headquarters experience, or you know maybe send someone from headquarters that doesn't actually understand China well. I mean, those are two extremes. Um, you know, many of the podcasts that we've done, you know, went with different industries, like for instance the legal industry, where they're talking about how you know over the past you know you know 10, 10 15 years. I mean, really the sort of expat idea has really faded a lot as there's been a lot of, you know, uh, Chinese talent that has worked its way up through the, mm -hmm. through the hierarchy. Like what's your sense of like, an, you know, good profiles for management teams at the local level, as far as headquarters experience, China experience? Yeah. So there definitely, you know, there's been a, a long-term trend of localization right. and, you know, American companies have always been particular, you know, they've embraced this, I think always, very enthusiastically. Uh, I mean, there, at one point in time, maybe there are cost considerations. I don't think, you know, for senior executives, you know, that really isn't a factor at all because right. the local talent, you know, isn't any cheaper than imported talent. Uh, it's mainly, you know, for the benefits of what that person can bring to a position in terms of either local relationships or understanding the market and all of that. So the profile uh, because there is, you know, there's a significant pool of talent out there now because you have many, right. and we're talking mainly, you know, at the sort of the senior management level, I assume, where you know, people have you know, perhaps educated in the United States. You know, they perhaps have actually worked in a corporate headquarters in the U.S. They moved around uh, among various sort of Western multinationals mm -hmm. and have developed experience. So, uh, so that... Uh, and it'll vary, you know, how companies handle this varies a little bit at, at a point in time. I mean, some years back when there was GSK, there was a big scandal about GSK and in the pharmaceutical industry. So the reaction at that point was to, you know, to reconsider how, I guess, the mix of local to, uh, to expat talent. Mm -hmm. And so there was a period of time when you saw in the pharma industry, you know, sort of a renewed emphasis on trying to bring in expats. Know, thinking okay. that maybe this would, you know, help with compliance and you'd have sort of better systems, whether or not that's true or not, that's a separate matter. But so you will have, you know, kind of it can fluctuate a bit over, you know, in different industries over time. But in general, you know, if I, you know, again, even in AmCham Shanghai and looking at their demographics, you know, the, you know, the biggest chunk of the membership are PRC nationals. Hmm. So that's not really it shouldn't be a surprise. Or if I think of gatherings of senior executives, you know, from companies around the world that I attend, you know, at any one time. I mean, certainly half the people in the room would be, you know, ethnic Chinese. Right. Uh, again, when I, and it can be a mix. So you'll have returnees from the PRC. Of course, you have, you know, from, from Taiwan or Hong Kong or Singapore, you could have ethnic Chinese from Malaysia. So, you know, there are many who are sort of active, who are in these senior positions. But increasingly, uh, definitely, uh, PRC nationals are used for you know for senior positions. Interesting. Uh, sort of go going back a little bit to our you know earlier discussion about you know sort of government reaction. You know, one of the questions that came in here um, asks about you know whether you can perceive any sort of line in some ways that the government may not 
cross. And, and this, you know, the, the, the discourse is always so very, you know, strident and bellicose that, you know, you're, you know, violating national interests. And this is, you know, um, you know, sort of, un, you know, can't, we can't stand this, you know, this is, we're not going to stand for this. But is there any, um, like, what's your sense about, like, where potentially a, a line is or some examples where, like, maybe you thought there was some just pulling back or hesitancy on, on responding in a very aggressive way? Well, there may be different types of scenarios yeah. because I guess, you know, because we are talking about more politically driven right. things. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you could have an example of a company that just kind of breaks a rule and then the question of whether or not, you know, the legal rep or, the, you know, the, the China head is arrested and put in prison, mm -hmm. right, and if it's an expat. So they're not... So there are not too many. Uh, there are not too many examples of that. And now, whether that is that because all multinationals are so well behaved, you know, I like to think that that's the case. Uh, so maybe that's. I mean, that's. I'm sure that's sort of the main reason. But so that maybe would be uh, a line that, okay. that would certainly get people's attention. If you know, right. if we started to have examples of that. Uh, but in terms of, I guess the. Now again, I would say that if there's a line that China draws, it's that they. I mean, they don't want to see, you know, a lot of violence. So going right. back to Japan's problems, I mean, there were, and there have been examples of uh, Chinese citizens who then, you know, through, whether they're throwing stones through windows and, you know, if it's right. a retail outlet or they're smashing up cars. And at some point, you know, if it starts to get out of hand, you know, the government will worry mm -hmm. and then they will try to dial things back. Right. So that's certainly sort of one area. Uh, but I guess the main area where we'd see that being careful would be as a when they have these broad brush campaigns, you know, again, whether it's Australia and so iron ore is protected, right. or in the case of South Korea, uh, semiconductors is protected. You know, they are making sure that they don't go after these products that they really need. So they're trying to, you know, to make the point yeah. and not to hurt themselves, you know, as much in the process. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of U.S. policy going through recently in regards to China. I mean, you know, the one sort of relatively sensitive one is obviously the um, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a lot of other discussion of other sort of various support that the, for the U.S. government to give. And, and I'd love to hear, you know, how the U.S. companies are responding to these actions. The U.S. companies in China, obviously, are responding to that. You know, a lot of surveys actually have said that U.S. business is doing very, very well in China during these difficult trade tension times, at least in some industries. Although in the U.S., from the laws that are being made and the discourse in the media suggests the opposite. So what's the word on the ground from the U.S. business community about what the U.S. government's positions are? Well, maybe, I mean, to start on with the, on the easy part of your sure. question, because you did mention, I mean, the performance of companies. So, right. And I think that probably most people on this call will will understand this, but I mean, companies actually have performed pretty well. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're endless surveys, you know, U.S.-China Business Council right. surveys, its members, you know, the chambers do. And for years, you know, these surveys have all shown that, you know, that, these, that the member companies in terms of, you know, revenue growth or profitability, you know, that they do pretty well in China and in many cases, you know, better than their global performance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is, doesn't mean everybody because there, you know, particularly in, you know, last year, there was a lot of regulatory activism on the part of China. So if you were a foreign investor in the education sector, mm -hmm. right. you know, suddenly overnight, you know, your business wasn't right. doing very well. Yeah. So there are these things that can yeah. occur. But in general, uh, and this is, and of course, if you're in, the, in technology, you know, there's also, you know, a challenging area for some companies. Uh, but so that's on the performance side. On the and, and Xinjiang and the various sanctions and, you know, the Forced Labor Prevention Act. Uh, so, you know, companies are highly attuned to this. Right. Uh, so I would say, you know, the first thing on their mind is just to understand, so what does the law say? Right. And, you know, what do they have to do to be in compliance? Because, you know, that's, you know, I said that that is really the first reflex. That, right. I mean, they understand uh, if there's a regulation that you have to comply. So it's, you know, there's not a question of somehow not complying. It's a question of, you know, what does that compliance look like right. or what is the expectation? And then actually, of course, you know, what challenges will this create for you? Because there could be, you know, there'll be operational challenges in terms of, particularly on, on this new uh, legislation regarding Xinjiang, mm -hmm. 
because it is you know quite broad based in terms of you know the supply chain and a company's obligation to monitor and understand what's going on in its supply chain so companies you know do need to make sure that they have systems in place so I haven't I mean, gotten into detailed discussions with companies about that but I assume I mean first it's you know to understand what their obligation is and in that particular piece of legislation so they're still in the process of you know, they're, they're soliciting public feedback there'll be hearings right. you know there's a certain timeline for this before it becomes uh, fully effective mm-hmm. but you know companies know enough about it I think to start to to make plans to you know, whether they have to you know scrub their supply chain right. or make sure they you know to do audits in Xinjiang you now this isn't really something that a company can do so in general so I think that the uh, the reaction now has been to for those that it touches, and again, you know, it doesn't touch all companies. So mm-hmm. there'll be many companies who really aren't affected at all. But for those right. who are, yeah, I, I would say, you know, it's probably looking for ways how can they disengage, you know, from Xinjiang, in particular, and then, you know, but not to hurt, you know, their larger interests in China. You know, if they have to kind of rebuild, right, uh, look for supplies elsewhere and things of that sort. And then there's a the whole internal process of what do you do internally to make sure that, you know, you're in terms of, you know, checking on your suppliers or if there's an incident, do you have some system in place to 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 address that, you know, to show that you're doing your due diligence? Because yeah. this is also part of, I guess, if there's any question from the U.S. government side, you know, they'll want to see that you're that you're actively, you know, trying to ensure that a problem mm-hmm. doesn't occur. And that would be considered you know, in the context of, I guess, any action that the U.S. government might want to take against a particular company that they feel has sort of violated the regulation, violated the law. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, this is, um, you know, as supply chains pull out of Xinjiang, I mean, it's, you know, there could be consumer backlash as well. I think the Walmart situation that might have had something, Eric, you know, had, had to do with whether they were right. sourcing in Xinjiang or not. So that. Yeah, delicate balance. You know, in the la- in our last ten minutes or so, I'm interested in like sort of more looking to the f- to the future a bit, and uh, and please, you know, folks, add some questions. We have, we have one question here that you know is I think sort of interesting to think about, and, and it's regarding the domestic Chinese versus international brands, and there's been part of the nationalist uptick. You know, there's been, at least in, in the media, as I see it, and even when I was, even before COVID, when I was in China a bunch, you know, a, a much bigger interest in buying China Chinese brands, Chinese-made products. But yet, you know, as you mentioned, um, you know, the, there's a lot of survey evidence that shows that the U.S. businesses are doing better than ever. You know, long-term, do you see continued shifting away from international domestic brands? And, you know, is there some point at which markets will be shrinking for for the for the US brands. Well, I think so that's so there's definitely a trend of of local consumers gravitating toward uh, local brands and so we could attribute this to you know is it out of a sense of of uh, patriotism or is it out of uh, for, for some of in most cases I mean the local brand offers something you know it's fairly good quality it mm-hmm. might actually be sort of more tuned to what consumers are looking for. Right. I mean, there definitely have been periods of time in the past. I mean, Huawei would be an example. You know, when the U.S. started with actions against Huawei, now I would say that there was a bit of a patriotic surge, mm-hmm. and you know, more people went out to buy Huawei phones. Uh, but Huawei actually already had a you know a pretty good phone for most Chinese consumers, and in fact, that you know back at that time, in terms of the you know the cameras on Huawei, you know, it was superior right. uh, to some of the alternatives. But now, I mean, iPhone is again the most popular sort of phone in China. So you know, this is uh, certainly have, uh, an example of a, a brand that continues to be sort of very, you know, very strong. But for for, uh, for foreign companies, uh, so they definitely can't be complacent. I mean, they will right. continue to face you know a lot of competition from brands because uh, local brands also, you know, their you know their speed of making adjustments tends to be faster. Uh, the foreigners, because the you know, the decision loop you know isn't so distant, and so they can really uh, respond quickly to a, uh, a market need, and you know they've been faster to pick up uh, all on the digital side, and you know mm-hmm. e-commerce. So this has given them an advantage. Uh, so, but I I guess long term, I guess I would at the end of the day I would say as long as a 
a company, you know, a U.S. company has a good product at a good price mm-hmm. and is, you know, providing something sort of better than a local uh, competitor, uh, my belief is that that product will still be popular. Yeah, good. That's good insights. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious also about y- your thoughts on COVID and that effect moving forward. I mean, you talked a lot earlier about sort of relations between headquarters and local and how COVID has shaped that. I- I'm not sure when China is going to open up to having international visitors come again. But but do you see this sort of long duration of lack of contact, lack of you know interpersonal contact, having some sort of effect? Or you think you know whenever or and, and I'd be curious if you have any prediction on when China is going to open up and whenever that is, hmm. whether things might just go back to like they were before. Uh, so there might be three questions there. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, just on the mobility issue, I mean everyone's prediction on mobility. Uh, timetables has been wrong right. you know, for two years. So, uh, so, I mean, you know, the the prevailing wisdom at the moment is, you know, not until early 2023. Right. I mean, we have, obviously, it's both the Olympics and then, the, you know, the winter of, uh, uh, cold or COVID season and then the party congress in the fall. Uh, you know, I think China wants to see a, sort of a, a period of COVID quiet around the world, you know, just from a public health point of view, mm-hmm. you know, before they were to take a step. So uh, nobody's expecting to change anytime soon. And uh, who knows? Uh, in terms of long-term impact, so here actually, sorry, I think there are two, in fact. Right. I mean, one is, you know, since this period of isolation or lack of, in, you know, people-to-people interaction, you know, is occurring at a period of a lot of political tension between the United States and China. Mm-hmm. Now, over time, I do feel that it's starting to have an impact on the overall tone of the relationship because whether it's business interaction or educational exchanges or tourism, these are lots of things that have served as safety valves to some extent uh, in terms of the the politics of U.S.-China relations. You know, the ballast is a phrase that's often used to describe the role of the business community. Uh, And... You know, these just can't play that same role now because, you know, people can't come back and forth. So even for me in Shanghai, I mean, I've been here, you know, the whole COVID period. And over the, you know, the two plus years, you know, there are fewer and fewer foreigners mm-hmm. around. So, right. you know, I've become a bit of an endangered species <laughs> myself. Uh, so that's sort of the one impact just in terms of, you know, interrelations uh, at the people to people level. Yeah. The other is then just the sensitivity to resiliency of supply chain. Mm-hmm. So I'm not talking about uh, decoupling in a political sense, right? So I'm just talking about the practical considerations of if suddenly, you know, shipping goods across, you know, the Pacific becomes so challenging or there are no flights, so there's no air cargo, all these things. You know, this leads everybody. And the United States is, you know, also looking at its supply chain and has come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. So there's some things that you just want to keep at home. Right. And so for then for companies, do they need to think about this in, as well in terms of, you know, are there things that, I mean, this could actually work to the disadvantage uh, of a particular company if as a, you know, survey their supply chain, if there's something that they're dependent on from overseas, you know, their conclusion might be to actually try to source it here in China, you know, in response to this situation. Great. Thank you for that. One one other, you know, another question that came in is sort of, I think, interesting and really practical piece of advice. For a small company that is interested in expanding to China, but do not have an established local team, like, what advice would you have for them, and particularly vis-a-vis avoiding some of these, you know, hot-button political issues? Yeah, so I think, uh, particularly if, if there's no local team, I mean, there are some, I mean, there are groups out there that can help, frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, they have people on the ground, and uh, so they can, you know, provide, they actually can give you a, a local team at your disposal, you know, without it being your own. So I would say in that kind of situation, it probably makes sense to go to, so another group that can help out. I know you had, so for example, you had Frank Lavin, uh, right. maybe yeah, a yeah. couple of months exactly. ago, who was right. on your program. And you no, know, he's in the business of helping actually small U.S. companies export to right. China. And for those small companies, that they don't actually have, you know, the footprint in China. So what he has is a whole operation here that provides that, you know, for hire. You know, this is not a, you know, Frank isn't paying me <laughs> to make this commercial for him, but I just use that as an example of solutions to these types of problems. Yeah, good question. 
So we're almost out of time. Just the last question I have for you. I mean, as you mentioned, the Olympics are starting this evening. I mean, it's, you know, what's it like mm. in China now? You know, Olympics fever, pretty sedate given COVID. What, what, what's, what's, it, what's it like on the ground there? Yeah, so I would say it's it's pretty sedate. Uh, I think this is, so I was actually here for the Summer Olympics right. in 2008. So as I do kind of the mental contrast, you know, it is, it's quite different. Yeah. Uh, but I think we'd have to filter out, you know, the Winter Olympics is just not big a deal yeah. in China. And actually, even in the United States, I think it's fair to say that in general, you know, the, you know, the attention on the Summer Olympics versus the Winter Olympics, you know, it's a different caliber. Yeah. Uh, so... I mean, I am going to an opening ceremony, watching ceremony tonight okay. uh, with some friends. So it's not as though it's completely sort of ignored. But, you know, it definitely, I mean, you can't go. So right. this will be my second Olympics in China, neither of which I've been able to attend anything, uh, you know, even if I had wanted to. Uh, so in that sense, you know, you know, there's, I don't sort of sense the, it's not the same level of excitement as in 2008 for the of the Beijing Summer Olympics. Ken, thanks so much for joining us on China Corner Office. Really appreciate your insights and looking forward to talking again sometime. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you, Chris. Thanks very much.